You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is God's word. I think Tabitha was excited about reading. She said she was uncomfortable with it, but I think she, she really wanted to read that verse. Yeah. Uh, all right, this is the moment where if you have kids, uh, you're welcome to take them on back to the kids' room in the back, uh, back where Malena is, and they can check in back over there. I'm sure you've checked them in already. And, uh, and I just will remind you a little bit about our year. Uh, we're, yeah, we're going through Galatians, as I mentioned before. Uh, we picked it because we thought that this book was helpful um, in the context of the, the last year and a half, uh, going on two years now that we've had, um, because this, uh, this book was written to a church that was having some conflict and dealing with some issues. Uh, these issues were, were ones that kind of caused people to ask questions about the gospel, like, can you, can you believe the gospel and, uh, and believe these other things. The issue at hand in Galatia was the issue of, of circumcision, uh, especially, but there were a lot of underlying issues that came along with that. Uh, there were political issues because to be um, identified as Jewish or Gentile in this context had, had a lot to do with kind of where you were accepted and what kind of rights were extended to you. Uh, there were racial issues because to be, you know, ex- to be brought into the Jewish faith and to go through the circumcision uh, ritual kind of had had a lot of meaning. If you didn't do that, it felt like kind of a, an, a rejection of the, the nation, of the uh, ethnicity, of the people of God. So there were, there were big questions under this that have some parallels to some things that have come up in our world. And so um, you, you might have to go back into our series to kind of unpack some of how we've addressed some of those other things. But, um, but this, this book, I think, has a lot of relevance uh, to where we've been as a church, especially amidst some of the things that have gone on in the world throughout the past couple years. So um, with that said, let me pray, and we will jump in to this week's sermon. Father, thank you for the chance to be with these people, to, um, to gather together under your word, and to worship you with our voices, with our actions, with our hearts. I pray that you would guide us through this time, as this, uh, this scripture is is so full of, of things that are interesting, but things that are really challenging to us. I pray that we would learn from it, that you would teach us, that you would conform us to the image of Christ, that we would love your grace. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. So kind of my, my thesis today is that this scripture can be applied to, um, to struggling with your faith to some degree, and, and one common way in which that happens, and that is when your faith is disrupted by someone else, uh, particularly someone else's belief about the gospel and what it requires. And these are, these are big questions to ask within Christianity. What is the gospel? What does it require? Um, and, and, and they're valid questions, and they're questions that are being asked. Um, today, I would say the it's a very common thing to, to leave the church, to leave the faith. This is a very, um, if, you're, if you tune into Christian stuff, 
uh, you hear about exvangelicals, and there's you know whole accounts having this discussion. Um, there are articles coming out. I saw one that came out just this week that basically said they are not coming back, and it was talking about the group of younger uh, believers who, in church leadership circles, people have speculated, well, you know, once they have families or something like that, once they get through college, I'm sure they'll see the value of their faith, and they'll, they'll come back around. And this article is coming out of the Baptist world, and it kind of said, look, um, they are having families. They're actually moving back to a lot of the suburbs where their parents came from. They're doing all the things you expected, but they are not, indeed, uh, coming back into the church. And so that it's a thing that's happening. It's a big conversation. And right out front, I want to say, I don't think it's all wrong. Um, I don't want to get up here and just say, ah, this is all terrible. I think it's good for people to examine their faith. I mean, this is a big key piece of kind of what we encourage uh, here at Mission is, yeah, do examine your faith. Be, be sure that when you come before God that you, you believe what you say you believe. I, I mean, I, I actually, from what I get, can gather from the scriptures, God is not honored by someone who comes before him and does things just because that's the ritual or that's what their parents told them to do. But, but God is actually honored when you truly do um, believe and, and engage with him. Uh, that said, I think to believe and engage with God is often, I think we often think of it as being sure um, and just being confident. And, and I don't think the scriptures present that to us either. I think what we see in the Bible is we see people who, who wrestle with God. In fact, the name Israel, I think I've said this here probably about 30 times, but Israel, the name of God's people, comes from Jacob. Um, and the reason Jacob was named Israel is because he wrestled with God it, physically, but if you read the story of his life, he wrestled with him in the way in his faith, in the way that he, he engaged with him and tried to believe, but rebelled and struggled. So the, the very identity of the people of God, uh, of the Old Testament, and then we're called the new Israel uh, in the New Testament, is that faith is not simple. Um, to have faith is to actually deal with God, have a real relationship with him, which sometimes means that you're going you're gonna to kind of bump heads with God and have to deal with, with things that you struggle with and such. So anyway, all, all that said, I truly don't think that, a, that, that the majority of what people deal with when they leave has to do with positions and stances and doctrines. I think so often it's about people. And I've had conversations with uh, people in my family, uh, extended family, friend circles, and of course here in the church, and, and there have been two, two themes that I've seen behind people that are leaving a church or the entire church. They're pretty strong themes. And the first has been anxiety. Just there's been a, a deep anxiety. And, and maybe it's, you could call it an unshared anxiety, like, I am very anxious about this, and you do not share my anxiety, and that worries me more. That's, that's a theme I've seen. And the other theme is it's about a person or a group of people that they, maybe they, in, they don't engage with my anxiety, maybe they trigger my anxiety, or maybe they've hurt me specifically. This is almost always, rarely is it about the specific belief. It's about something that's, that's had to do with a person or a group of people. Um, what's going on behind the book of Galatians and so for a little bit of context, this letter is prompted by the fact that some teacher, and we get, a, we get a clue here in Galatians 5, that it was some specific teacher. And 
Either Paul isn't naming this teacher or he doesn't know who it is. One of the two. But some specific teacher and his followers, who they called the Judaizers, had come to Galatia and told the Galatian Christians they weren't doing enough in their faith, um, that they needed to heed more of the Old Testament ceremonial laws. They needed to get circumcised specifically. Um, They needed to follow the feasts and the festivals of Judaism. And if they didn't do this, that they weren't legitimate Christians. Um, And they they were teaching this. And this was causing, as you can imagine, some anxiety among the people. That's what Paul is addressing. Um, And as I'm sure is true of some of us, some people probably heard this message and they went, oh no, and they want to do do what's right and they want to conform and have people approve of them. So they said, oh no, we have to, I guess we have to do this. And of course, you know, if you're you're a man and you're an adult, um, you know, this idea, this is a big thing to swallow. Am am I going to go get circumcised? Wow. I... But, but some people probably heard that and went, oh, I have to, that's what I have to do. And others, I assume, which is also true of some of us temperamentally, probably felt immediately the desire to rebel against this and, and kind of heard it and went like, forget this faith. I don't want to be any part of this. This is too demanding. I mean, th- these are kind of the, the two ways that people respond to this kind of message. You either, I want to conform, I want to please, or I don't want to be burdened, leave me alone, Right? And in either case, it was prompted by, there were beliefs tied up in there, but it was prompted by a person. It was prompted by the teachings of someone and a group and their followers. And it caused disruption, anxiety, and division. And Paul is addressing this issue head on. I mean, it's pretty pretty shocking, right? It was shocking, like the words that that Tabitha just read to us, you know, like, ooh, emasculate, ah, what's happening here in the Bible, right? But it's also very surprising. We're distant. We're thousands of years away from this particular instance. You know, but Paul is like going after this issue. And he's essentially saying that to, to get us focused on the gospel, we need to clear this issue up. We need to deal with it head on. We need to talk about it. And, um, and, and he's doing that. He really is going after it. Now, in here, in Galatians 5, I feel like I've been saying this the last few times that I've preached, but here Paul is driving home a strong argument. He's been emotional in the last several sections we've read. He's been deeply empathetic um, in the last few sections that we've read. Um, but in this passage, he, is, he gets pointed, and he even, he even utilizes vulgarity. Honestly, that's what it is. He utilizes like the vulgar language and really gets at something. He's trying to shake people awake to think about what he's trying to say. But in that, he's not being unhinged or undisciplined. This isn't Paul off the rails, um, you know, just, just arguing or blowing off steam at all. We know this because his language is extremely purposeful, And it's forceful, but it's forceful in its creative integrity and complexity. I'm going to show you some of this. He's drawing out a metaphor of running a a Greek Olympic race. He's pulling out a colloquial parable about bread making. There's wordplay around the concept of cutting that goes through this whole section that's really interesting. And he makes two provoking Old Testament allusions that would have hit Jewish people really hard, that you have to understand to to really see how how it hits And this is clearly someone who wrote um, this purposefully. 
Um, and it was meant to be dealt with and digested, you know, though it might shock us at first blush. This is, this is some pretty, pretty thoughtful stuff we're reading, even though it comes across very forceful. So I want to share it with you under these four headings, and I hope we come to appreciate it more. Um, people, will, people will trip you up. I think Paul is saying this, and I want, to, I want to show you the language behind that. Disgraceful, disgraceful teaching spreads. False gospels are impotent, and Christians stand for a scandal. These are all ideas that come right out of this, out of this text. So, sound interesting? Yeah? Okay, let's do it. People will trip you up. He says, and as Tabitha has already read to us, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you, or in other words, from God. And this word, this word hindered is really the word cutting in. Um, and this is coming from this idea of, of a race, that somebody might cut in front of somebody else and actually cause them to trip. And as I mentioned, we believe that there was direct teaching from somebody else in Galatia. Like I said, maybe Paul knew who they were, maybe he didn't. He didn't name them. But this person, and presumably their followers, Paul is saying that what these people have done is essentially unsportsmanlike conduct. He's, he's pulling out the metaphor of a race, and he's saying it's not from God, it is wrong, and it's against the rules. It needs to be called out, and it needs to be stopped. And you'll notice that Paul is protective toward the Galatians that he knows, but he is not here being soft or wishy-washy. He does not say everybody's entitled to their own opinion. He's not trying to make everyone happy. Um, you cannot come away from this and say he doesn't want anybody to be offended or he wants everyone to get along. No, he is concerned about one thing, and that is that the grace of God is upheld and honored, that the, the plan of God for all time and the grace of God are upheld, defended, and honored. So Paul, we see here, as was true of Jesus, is being hard on someone and a group who are self-assured of their own righteousness and are putting a burden on the back of others. And Jesus did this, right, with the Pharisees. You see, Jesus, it's an interesting thing, and I've said this here at our church before. We often, I think, we, what we tend to do, we look at Jesus, and, and he's not always soft, right? Sometimes he has hard words, and then other times he's extremely gentle. And if you really look, look at it, he tends to have the hardest words for the people who believe that they please God and, and kind of hold heavy loads over others. And he is very gentle and kind toward those who are, who are even deeply sinful, uh, and who, but who can see it, who don't, don't believe that they're better than others. And we often, what we want to do is we want to look within the church at people who, who say they believe in God and kind of hold high standards, but they, they struggle here and there. And we want to say, it's okay, you're one of us. Um, I won't be too hard on you. And then look at kind of outside people who are, you know, we, who we figure are kind of like, from a societal standpoint, hurting us, and we want to condemn that. Jesus almost reverses it. To those inside, he has, he has words of, of real challenge. And for often those outside, he either just doesn't really engage with them at all, or he's sharing like words of grace. That's something that you can see over and over again. So to work this out for the Galatians, to help them understand what's happening, draw, like Paul draws out this metaphor of the Greek race. And so in the Greek Olympic race, um, there are a couple things that happened. Um, number one, they didn't wear clothes. So that's, that's interesting. 
and elsewhere where Paul kind of talks about this race, he uses that kind of imagery too. He talks about casting off everything that hinders you or everything that like weighs you down. And, and he was pointing to that. They, they, would, they would wear nothing that would slow them down. So they wore nothing, actually. And they would run, instead of running like a, a circular lap or a, you know, an oval lap as they do in the Olympics today, they would run straight to a pole or a post and then they would turn around and run back. And so a problem that they had um, would be because they didn't have lanes and stuff like that is they would, people would trip and fall. And this is why they redesigned the track, right? But at, at the time, and you could see how in doing that, some of that would be accidental, but also if someone wanted to cheat, right, that you could easily, you run into the pole, you turn around and boink, you know, and, and you could cut in in front of somebody or, you know, and you could hinder their ability to win the race. And that's the language he's using. He's saying this, your, your Christian life is like a race. And he's spoken this way in many other places, uh, such as Hebrews 12 and 1 Corinthians 9. Hebrews 12 is where he talks about casting off all weights or any sins that entangle you in order to run the race that's set before you. In 1 Corinthians 9, he talks about how you need to run with endurance, and he talks about how you need to discipline yourself and actually build into your faith to be able to run the race of the Christian life. And it's a complex metaphor, but here he's saying in your Christian life, you need to, you need to understand that you might get tripped up. And I went on a little Google digression and found an incident that illustrates this. I, I think I sent a slide in. Maybe they have it. But in, in the 1984 um, Los Angeles Olympic Games, there's, there's this hotly debated race. And so Zola Bud, Mary Decker, if anyone's ever heard of this. And, and here's the thing. It's difficult to tell what happened, if it was an accident or if it was on purpose. But one of them steps on the heel of the other, and she goes down and loses the race, right? And, and she's highly favored, and, and so there's all of this speculation that it was on purpose. And actually, there was a huge response. People were furious. And then they went back and they reviewed the tape and they came back and said they, they thought it was an accident. And that distinction is really important, right? Because if it's on purpose, this is terrible injustice. And how do you even undo it? You'd almost have to do the whole race over again, but you can't do a race over again. You know, it's, it's a terrible injustice if it was on purpose. But if it was an accident, it, it's just really sad right, for everyone involved. It's just really sad, and it's going to require some, some reconciliation, like working, like you, somebody's just going to say, I'm so sorry for what I've done, and the other person's just going to have to accept that it happened, and um, <laughs> yeah, you can barely see that, but see, see, it happened. Um, the, the motive is very important. Then there was, a, there was a race in 2012 where, and this is a little bit different, but uh, Abel Mutai, his name was a Kenyan guy, is running, and he, he, he somehow gets confused. He's way ahead, and he stops before the end of the race, and he just kind of, he's hanging out. And the guy who's in second place is running and is like, what is he doing? And the crowd starts yelling like, run, right? And so this, this other guy, his name's uh, Ivan Fernandez Anaya, actually grabs him, puts him in front of him, and goes, ah, and, and so he wins. And somebody asked later, they said, why did you do that? That You could have beat him, you know? There he is. He's like, go. <laughs> and they asked him, and he said, look, 
he just got confused. He rightfully won. He'd, he was going to win. I, I couldn't take it, right? And wow, like that's, that's incredible. And the, the motivations that are going on under these situations are really important. Like here's a guy who could have taken the race, right? He could have taken the win, but he goes, no, 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 no. I'm going to help this guy. He just got confused. So he, he's not running well because he's confused. In this other case, there's this situation like, was this an accident? Was this on purpose? And I think, I think as Paul works out this metaphor, it's really important to think about these kind of scenarios that happen when someone, a person, trips us up in our faith, right? Because it, it makes a huge difference why they did it. It makes a huge difference. And that completely changes how we engage with it as, as the church. If somebody, if, this, if somebody accidentally, and you know what the word sin really means, right? It's, it's another word for accident. It's an unintentional miss. You don't have to try to sin. Every time you make a mistake, that's sin, right? And so if somebody sins against you, and, it's, and they're not trying to destroy your life, destroy your faith, it, it can be really painful. It can be really hard. But this is, this is something to work through, to, to deal with, to reconcile, to, to consider. I mean, that... That is what the Bible is always going to recommend when someone sins against you, right? Is that you try to work it out and you, you assume, you really kind of assume that this, is, this sin might not have been a purposeful try to just destroy your life. And then sometimes people are, are you know, tripped up, if you will, because they're, they're just, they're confused, they're lost, they're wondering, you know, kind of like this other runner. And those are the people to just, just pick them up and help. Just, just join with them, help them out. But sometimes, as Paul is telling us here, sometimes somebody's trying to mess with you. Sometimes somebody's trying to hurt. And, and sometimes it's not so much about you, but there's something about the, the grace of the gospel that somebody just can't stand, and they want to undo it. They want to they wanna trip that up in you. And that needs to be discerned. This is a grave difference. So I opened with reading from Genesis 3. There's a, there's a huge difference between the two temptations you see in Genesis 3. There's the serpent to Eve, right? And the serpent is, is he's, on, he's purposefully trying to destroy the gospel of grace, which is the gospel of grace is the good news that, that God gives us what we do not deserve, that he's good, that he cares for us, that he loves us. He has our best interests in mind. He's going to carry us all the way through. And, and Adam and Eve had been essentially told this. They'd been offered to, that they could trust in the Lord. Um, and not lean on their own understanding, to acknowledge him in all their ways. He would direct their paths, if you will. He, they, they were told, just don't eat of that fruit. You, you know, it's, there's knowledge of good and evil there. God has it. You don't, you don't need it. You can trust God. And the serpent comes in, and he undermines that, right? And he tempts her. And then Eve is now just deceived. She's, she's allured by this idea of this knowledge, and she hands it to Adam, who was with her, right? And, and he takes it. Now, that temptation right there, she's not trying to destroy the gospel of grace. She has been affected. She's, she's tripped. She's stumbled herself. And in the one case, as like with Adam and Eve, what's, do you think there was ever any point that God said, ah, don't have anything to do with him. Leave her, Adam, or leave, her, leave him, Eve. No, they, they're called to stay together, to reconcile this, to walk together, right? But God never says that with the serpent. There's judgment coming on the serpent. That was on purpose. He was trying to destroy the gospel of grace. Um, 
If someone's confused, tripping up, uh, has sinned against you because, they, because they've just been affected by something outside, help, help them, point the way, reconcile with them. But if it's anti-grace, it's time to clarify and defend the gospel. It's, try, it's time to call it unsportsmanlike. It's time to, uh, to seek the intervention of like a godly elder like Paul and to deal with it. And it's always painful. But Paul is telling us here, people will trip you up. And, he, and I say I'm using the word will intentionally as opposed to might because Jesus told us that on top of the accidental stuff, the accidental sins, um, he said in Matthew 7, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. I mean, Jesus told us this was happening, right? This is going to happen. Which means that false prophets or enemies of the gospel sound really appealing and, and often might look like Christians, that's what it means, right? They might look like Christians. To, who, to whom will they appeal? Um, I don't know. Are the postmodern conservatives following them now? Sure. Yeah, maybe. But no, no. Everyone's following them. Everyone's susceptible to this. When it says they'll appear in sheep's clothing, you have to understand, you have to listen to this and say, they'll appear in the sheep's clothing that I would see as sheep's clothing, Right? Not only that those different from me might see a sheep's clothing, they'll appear in, my, in the sheep's clothing that's appealing to me. So beware of the appealing message that draws you away from trusting Jesus. That's what you need to be aware of, the, the appealing message that draws you away from trusting in Jesus. Paul repeats uh, Jesus, in, in essence, in Acts 20, 29. He says, know that, and this is, Paul leaving one of the churches he's led, the, the Ephesians, I believe, know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, right? It's an assumption throughout the scriptures. It's not just pre-resurrection of Jesus, it's post, that anti-gospel teachings are going to come, and from where their influence, Paul is saying, will have, will have kind of infiltrated within the church. It'll come from within. So, so I think we have to say, like, don't just beware of, like, the, the secular world's effect on you, beware of the Christian book or the prophet online that leans and moves you outside of the gospel of grace back into dependence on being better yourself, on achievement, winning the fight with any sword but the sword of the Spirit. Beware of that. What, and the, uh, the most appealing version to you is the one you need to look out for. People will trip you up. Now, why is this such a big deal? Why, why do we have to be so careful with, with looking out for this kind of stuff, right? And that's where I get to the second piece, disgraceful, disgraceful, notice the emphasis, disgraceful teaching spreads. Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. This comes across in the text, and, and I hope you got it even when Tabitha read it, it, it feels just like a little saying just dropped in the, it's like, how does this flow? And it is, it's a, it's a, it's a parable. It's a, a, a parable from Paul's day. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It's a short, pithy statement teaching a general truth. They probably had all heard it a million times. And the proverb is basically, you know, bringing out this idea that leaven or like yeast in bread making, you, you don't need equal parts of it and the dough, right? You just need a little bit and you work it through the entire lump of dough. And so it just takes a little bit to spread and, um, and affect the whole lump. And of course, the same is true of many things and false teaching is one of them. But I mean, this is, this is true of many things. It's a general principle. Think about like a friendship. A friendship, you can have a thousand things in common, but one thing gets in there and 
and it can destroy the whole friendship. Right? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It can destroy, you know, just one small thing can affect everything. And the presenting issue in, in Galatia, as I said, was that Gentile believers had to be circumcised or become Jewish in order to be Christians. And Paul is saying this little teaching that feels like, you know, it's some of them were probably like, well, I could go get circumcised and still be a Christian. Like, I could still believe in Jesus and do this, like the people who wanted to conform, right? But Paul is saying, this will entirely alter the gospel message. If you accept this, it'll never end. Nick kind of taught us this last week, that when you open the door to, to, to the law, that you, if you, I'll just keep one, if you're, if you're going to try to be justified by keeping just one of the laws, mm, you're going to have to keep the whole thing. You have to really be on guard about this. Either Jesus fulfilled kind of these purity and ritual requirements of the law, or he didn't. You're either accepted by the work of Jesus alone, or you aren't. You can't kind of do a half, half and half. So if you start trying to secure your place in God's family with anything but grace, it means you're no longer trusting Jesus alone. You're trusting Jesus and something that you did. And that undermines grace. Now, it's really interesting that he chooses this parable, though, because it's even stronger than it comes across at first. You can see the principle of the parable, right? But like I said earlier, this, this is one of those moments where his language is so purposeful. This is the first Old Testament allusion here. Because in the Old Testament, at the exodus from slavery, the people of Israel were commanded to bake, what, unleavened bread. You might remember this. So they weren't allowed to put any, any little pinch of yeast in it, right? It had to be unleavened bread. And likely this is because that bread would bake quickly and God had told them something. He told them that they were going to have to rise up and follow him. He was going to deliver them, right? So they had to, they had to bake this bread that was going to bake very fast. But in, in baking the bread that was going to bake very fast, they were, they were in a sense inwardly asserting that they trusted that God was going to deliver them the way that he'd said, right? And he did. God delivered them dramatically, miraculously, and then they, they were given a feast by God, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the purpose of this feast is to remember that God had been faithful to them. And, and it's pointing them forward to trust in him next time. He is faithful to his promises. What he says he will do, he will do. So God said to them, if you put any yeast in your bread on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you'll be cut off from, from God's people, from the nation of Israel. And that seems really drastic. Doesn't it? Like, wow, what a judgmental God. But the point of it, why, Paul, why, why not Paul, why God is saying this, why he declares this in Exodus 12 and Deuteronomy 16, is he's very serious about them remembering his grace. That it's his work, that it's his promise that they are to anchor in, nothing else. He is so serious about that, that he says, if you, if you disregard this way that I've given you to remember it, then, then you're undercutting my whole message to you, and you will forget. And, I, and I'm not going to allow you to do this. So these people were suggesting the Galatians needed to be circumcised and keep the feast. And Paul is saying, you are violating what the feast days proclaimed because the feast days taught us to look back at this most profound and gracious act that, that they had ever experienced as a nation when God had, to, had delivered them from their slavery out of Egypt and Paul is saying, the feast, days, the feast days were pointing us to his grace. Now, 
an even greater grace has come. If you go back to the feast, you'll be disregarding, it's like putting yeast in the bread, you'll be disregarding this greater grace that's come because at the Exodus, God came in the fire and the cloud, right? In Jesus, God came in the flesh. At the Exodus, the plagues came upon Israel and the firstborn died. In Jesus, the horrors of judgment fell upon God in the flesh. And Jesus, the only son of God, died in the place of people who were guilty. In the Exodus, God's people crossed the Red Sea to a safer shore. In Jesus, we cross over from death into life, into the kingdom of God, into everlasting peace. And he says, if you disregard Jesus and what he's done and go back to the feasts, you have missed the greater grace that I have given you. And this is serious. The greater salvation has come. The fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that circumcision reminded them of, the perfection of their redemption that they tasted at, at the Exodus. So to forget Christ would be to disregard such a great mercy. And that's why Paul's taking this so seriously. And do you see in there that they would be cut off from God's people if they added the yeast, right? Paul's saying not only does this bad teaching spread, but he, in referring to the yeast, he's getting to this clever wordplay. And, and you have to kind of think about this, but the word circumcision means to cut around. And to hinder, that word in English means to cut in. And by pulling out this idea of the yeast, Paul is pointing to them to a verse that they knew meant you will be cut off. And he's essentially saying, if you, if you want people to cut around, then you are cutting in and you are going to be cut off. And the Jewish people would have gotten this. It's, it's actually pretty clever. It's something that might have stuck in their heads. And you'd be cut off, not for messing up, but for disregarding God's grace. So what is the leaven today, right? I think it's the same it, nothing's really changed. It's not circumcision. I don't know any of you who are just racking your brains going home like, should I be circumcised? I don't know. You know, that's not probably our thing, right? If you are, that's okay. You could, we could talk about it. Um, but, but it's the same principle behind it. Anything that you are tempted to depend on more than Jesus is the leaven, Right? It's destructive because it moves you to view God as your debtor and your critic primarily, as opposed to your loving father, your gracious sin bearer, and your savior. And a little leaven still leavens the whole lump. And the modern day leaven list is long. As, as I mentioned, you know, anything that like the wolf in sheep's clothing that's appealing to you, I mean, the thing that you would rest on, that, that, you, would re- that you would say, I think if I do this, I'm good with God. I think if I, if I do this... Look for it in the things that are appealing to you to kind of add to your religious repertoire. That might be the leaven for you. Or look at the things that you're afraid disqualify you. The thing where you're like, every time I do that, I think God turns his back on me. There it is. That's it for you. Like, that's the thing that, that, you know, you go, if I just got that right, Jesus is saying to you, God is saying to you, no, my grace is, is enough. My grace is enough. It's all you need. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. So don't, don't think that fixing it. Next week, we're going to talk about why you'd want to behave well and honor the Lord and serve others. There's great motivation, but it's not to get God to accept you. That is something that has been bought for you at the cross, okay? Um, today, some, just to give you some other examples, like the leaven list, like I said, is very long, but 
But just to look at kind of the big movements, I mean, think about things like this. Some may say, look, you can believe the gospel, but you also have to get all of your political theory right. And you have to get all of your moral issues right. You've got to be on the right side of all these things. There can't be a hint of anything, you know, the wrong political theory in there for you, or else we might not associate with you. And you can't be on the wrong side of any of the issues, or we might not associate with you. That's not good. Others will say, you may believe the good news about Jesus, but you have to be on the right side of all the so-called justice causes, right? And you have to be more penitent than you are. You have to fix your viewpoint. And if you don't do that, God, will, God might reject you. And I will definitely, I may not associate with you. Those are not good movements. Those are the kind, that's like the leaven coming into the lump. If you're going to be about grace, like if the only thing that has saved you is grace, you do not need to fix those things to be justified. There may be very good reasons to fight for those causes to honor the Lord and love your neighbor, but not to be justified. And you have no business saying that someone is not your brother or sister if they believe in the grace and the cross of Jesus, even if they differ from you on some of those things. So, interestingly, these two movements I've kind of mentioned, which are on the sides of our political spectrum, don't they sound like things that we might run from because they're difficult to get right? And, and, and so many people on each side of these issues are so afraid that they're not living up to them, right? You have to kind of not talk about the ways that you don't quite live up to it. Um, they seem so oppressive in a way, but the truth is they're very alluring. And this has always been the case. Because when you're performing well, which is why the critique, right, of people who are, that people will say they're just performative, this is performative. They're not actually doing it. It's just performative. So when you're not performing well, or sorry, when you are performing well, you get this taste of righteousness, this self-sufficiency. And it feels good. It's like there's so much dopamine when you're getting it right, when you're on the right side. And then on, on, the, on the flip side, well, actually, to go on with that for a second, this is the exact thing. Like for Our natures crave that dopamine. Of, be, of being right, of being good, of being the best, right? I think this is the curse that caused Adam and Eve to cave in, was this like, I could know. I could know. I could have it. I could have what I'm lacking, right? And so people aren't typically, I think we're drawn, we're drawn to these ungraceful ideas. I don't think we're typically repulsed by grace itself. I think the idea of grace is very appealing. We talk here when we do movie nights, we're always seeing these hints of grace in the movies, and there's a reason so many of the great movies have these, like, these visions of grace within them. Like there's something about it that just appeals to the human heart, right? Like we, just, we watched Pig here after church a couple weeks back, and slight spoiler, but in the movie Pig, there's, there's a meal that's given that's not deserved, and it's a powerful moment. It's a powerful moment. And there's, there's a reason that that stuff speaks to us, but what we are repulsed by is the invitation that grace gives to us. Flannery O'Connor, we shared this quote on our Instagram, says, all human nature vigorously resists grace because grace changes us, and that change will be painful, right? And I think we're also drawn to things that are not grace because that even though they're not formal religions, there's something we worship, something we value more than grace. 
And when I say worship, I mean value, the thing you assign worth to. False gospels appeal to us because they offer us something we love. We love to feel superior. We love to be on the right side. We love to feel successful. We love to win. We love to feel in control of our destiny and, and to stand up for ourselves. Those things feel very good. We love them. We value them. And then we're right back to the garden where the tempter is saying, God did not surely say, you know, he, he, didn't, he doesn't have your best interests in mind. He will not be enough. You have to be enough. It has to be you. And that's a lot of pressure, but it scratches the itch of our sinful nature, which is why this leaven spreads so easily. Why, why the message of anything but grace spreads so easily, but it's powerless. Galatians has been saying this over and over again. It's powerless. And that's the impotence of the false gospel. Paul goes on to say, I have confidence in the Lord. You'll take no other view. And the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is, which kind of makes it sound like he doesn't know who it is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. And, and we assume here that, that Paul has been, he's been misrepresented by this teacher, that, this, that they're teaching he's, he is going to make you get circumcised eventually. But Paul's saying, no, I don't. And then there's this emphatic and vulgar wish, right? The weird part of this section. He just says, he says all that. He almost has this little aside, like, ah, you know, why would I, why would I do that I, if I'd be persecuted? And the, or why would I be being persecuted if, I'd, if I were still preaching circumcision? In that case, the offense of the cross had been removed. And then it's almost like he takes a sigh, sits back in his chair and says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. And you're like, what? Whoa, Paul, chill out. Now, what's this about? First of all, Paul's pushing his wordplay to the nth degree. Um, to those, you know, and, and I already kind of gave you this idea, to those who would cut around, they are cutting in, and they're in danger of being cut off. And then he kind of goes, so why don't you cut yourself off? There's like, the, there really is a theme of this word, and it's really interesting. But this concept's driven even further by a contextual fact, and this is our second biblical illusion, because for context, there's, um, or our second biblical illusion is coming. For context, in Galatia, there was a group of priests, uh, pagan priests, who did, indeed, they were eunuchs, and they, they did this to please their gods, okay? So the Galatian people had some context, and the Jewish people had some context. They were not fans of these guys at all. So, so there's that. And in a sense, Paul is saying, I wish you'd just go do what they did. Just Why don't you go be like them? You're already like them. And that's, that was probably very hard for them to hear. Um, but even more than that, the second Old Testament illusion is Deuteronomy 23. Because in Deuteronomy 23, there's another way that you can cut out, get cut off from God's people, and that is by mutilating yourself or becoming a eunuch. And if you think about the, the imagery of this, and I'll try to be discreet, but in the Old Testament to, to Abraham, they're given the sign of circumcision, and that's to remind these people that, one, it's going to be through Abraham's seed that the covenant grows, and it reminds them to honor the Lord. They're given all of these you know, ways that they're supposed to kind of guard their identity as God's people. They're not supposed to intermarry and things like this, and this is a very practical way for them to remember that, Okay? And if you were to then try to please God by becoming a eunuch, you would remove the sign of circumcision from yourself in an attempt 
to be a better person, in an attempt to please God more by your, you know, renouncing of your sexuality, you would go ahead and you'd remove the sign of the covenant in order to prove yourself more worthy. And God says, no, you cannot. I want you to look at my covenant, my promise, and anchor yourself in that, not in your own ability. Why? Because by removing your member, you, you may become incapable of this sexual sin, this unholy action, but it will not change your heart. It will not change your heart's desires or intent. And that's how all of the law works. Paul has explained this to us earlier in Galatians. The law is powerless to change your heart. But the gospel of grace has power, right? So this religious, um, you know, this religious act that, that people in Galatia were doing, this religious act that probably apparently people who wanted to be really holy and really righteous were doing actually is truly spiritually impotent. It lacked potency, it lacked power. And Paul is saying, now that Jesus has come, now that the Son of God was cut off from his people, now that the Son of God bled and was buried in the flesh, now that circumcision, in other words, pales in comparison to the new sign of the covenant, which is a a buried Savior who rises from the dead, what baptism speaks of for us, now to return to circumcision would be as regressive as becoming a eunuch. It's unreliant upon the grace of God. It's rejecting the greater sign, the greater gift of Christ and his work. It'll lead you to the same old things, to self-righteousness, to think you're better than others, or self-loathing because you keep the commandment of circumcision, but you fall short still because it hasn't changed your heart. Only grace can tell you the two deepest truths the human heart needs to hear. One, you're sinful and deficient. You're sinful and deficient. You might think, I don't need to hear that. But the truth is, we sense it, don't we? We're we're all afraid to admit it, but we sense it. Like, how many of you feel like you just absolutely measure up before the eyes of a holy God and before the eyes of those who know you the best? I haven't met anybody. So when God says to us, you're sinful, the truth is, it's kind of nice. If you receive it that way, you can say It's true. The thing I sense is true. But then grace tells us something more. It tells us at the very same time, God God loves you and you're more accepted than ever you ever could have been because of the cross work of Jesus. So this other side of you that so deeply longs to be known and seen, to be accepted, to be honored, to be respected, God is saying, look, I can tell you you're, you're sinful and deficient. And at the same time, you're more loved and expected than you'd ever dared hope. And that's, thanks Tim Keller for that language, right? But these two truths in concert have power, and that's the message of grace. To accept grace, you have to say that you need it. And to accept grace, it has to be complete, and it has to be guaranteed by God. We're truly known, even the darkness, but we're loved and accepted by our Creator. So, Both sides of this gospel are going to be opposed by the false prophets, by the spiritual enemy. So what are we standing for, and how do we fight? There's a little thing um, that this last point is Christians stand for a scandal. And in this verse, or in this section, I'm referring back to verse 11, where Paul referred to the cross. He said, he called it the offense of the cross. If he were still preaching circumcision, he'd be undoing, in a sense, the offense of the cross. And that word offense 
is the word scandalon or trap or stumbling block. And it's an interesting thing that Paul brings up um, elsewhere, and, and it's actually coming from the prophets. And this idea, it's this idea that the message of the cross is actually something that, that troubles people. It gets in the way. It's Like I said, it, it undermines this idea that I could be good enough. It undermines this idea, you know, that, like, I could do this on my own. And it's kind of bothersome. It's a trap. It's a stumbling block. It's a scandal. And the cross is an offense for many reasons. Jews in Paul's day saw the cross as a sign of the Old Testament curse. They looked at, at Deuteronomy 21 where it said, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And, they, and there were arguments. There were you know, strong arguments from Jewish leaders that are recorded in history where they say, how could God ever be cursed? How could, you, how could God, the holy God, be cursed? And they could not believe it. They could not accept the scandal of the cross. Greeks and Romans in Paul's day saw the cross as a sign of utter failure. It was an utter mockery. And that's what it was designed to do. They sat it at the gate of the city. They stripped people naked and hung them on a cross because it was like, if you, if you cross the Roman government, right, you're going to be, not only are you going to die, but you're going to be put to shame for a couple days as you die. It was an utterly shameful thing. So for, for their king and their God to have hung on a cross, these people, it was a mockery. It was, it was absolutely laughable. Um, the first depiction, you know this, the, and I've talked about this here at church too, the first depiction, the first imagery we have of Jesus in, in our history, the first image is this. This is a piece of graffiti on a wall, um, and, and it says, this was probably a school child making fun of his friend, and it says, Alexa Menace worships his God, and it's an ass on a cross. And it's a, a school child is mocking his friend saying, <laughs> you believe in the guy who hung on a cross. Wow. I mean, that is a scandal, right? Like this idea, that's a stumbling block. So, so I have to believe in the one who, who was utterly humiliated? Whew. How could you worship a God who failed and bled and died? How could God stoop so low as to take the depths of humanity's curse how about today? Is the scandal ended? Has the scandal ended? In, in many of our circles, we want a savior who's tough and intolerant, who fights back and takes his territory. There's books, videos, and posts being shared along these lines telling believers, take up the tactics of the world, fight with harsh words. In some cases, take up your weapons, take your country back. Jesus hung, afflicted. He stood before the, the powers that be, and he opened not his mouth. He engaged in utter weakness as he died, right? The cross is an ever-present reminder that he fought by absorbing sin and offering grace. He came to serve. How can we follow him if we're unwilling to do the same? The disciples and Paul laid down their swords, fought only with the message of grace, fought for only the message of grace as they literally and figuratively washed others' feet and loved their enemies. That is a scandal. That is a stumbling block. That doesn't sound very practical. How are we going to get anything done for the kingdom? Well, many religious, religious leaders have come and gone. Most of them took up the weapons of the world. Jesus' kingdom has never been diminished. 
It's grown, it's strong, it's weathered so many storms. Maybe, maybe, he knows what he's doing. Maybe grace actually works. On the other hand, the cross affirms our depravity. It judges us, right? And that's a scandal. That is a stumbling block. If Jesus had to die for sin, then sin is serious indeed. To embrace that actions and attitudes of the heart which deserve the curse that Jesus took on the tree and the wrath of God is to disregard the cross and all that it cost our Savior. Many in the church today want to say that sin isn't serious, that grace makes it meaningless, that, that God is just a, he's, you know, he just, he loves and accepts everybody just the way they are. And in a sense, yeah, you can come as you are, but you won't stay as you are, right? Others would say the Bible's just outdated in its regard to the demands of the holiness of God, but the cross stands forever as a testimony that that isn't the case, that sin is deathly serious, every bit of it. It caused our precious Lord to suffer the rejection of his soul. We should never look at the cross and do what, what we've been warned about in the scripture of looking at it and saying, ah, I'll just continue sinning so I can have more grace. That's a disregarding of the cross. The cross stands as a monument to grace. It declares we need it desperately. It declares it's ours conclusively. But it also declares that it was our sin that held him there, right? But the cross stands to say that when we accept, when we accept that our sin is serious, but we, we accept that what he did there was was conclusive that he didn't just die on that cross, he rose victorious. And we have no other hope than this, then we can hold on to no other form of righteousness, nothing else that gets us to God. It's, it's, it's a stumbling block. It's a narrow gate. It's hard to accept. In 1 Peter, the apostle Peter says this, you come to him, to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. There's that word scandal. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And that is that they reject the gracious covenant of God. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of yourselves. Oh, no, I read that wrong. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What's what is it about the people of God? They proclaim his excellencies. They proclaim his mercy. 
We're a people bound together by one thing, the mercy of God, that we don't get what we deserve. And grace is the flip side of that, that not only do we not get what we deserve, we get what we don't deserve. His love, the acceptance of God, a hope deep in our hearts that transcends all understanding and peace. And that's what this table speaks to us. For Christians, we declare the scandal when we come to the Lord's table. Because what are we doing? We're declaring our sin. Why is this bread broken? Why was the body of Christ broken? It's, it's because we deserve to break, right? Why was this blood shed? Because the covenant of God, the Old Testament, required the shedding of blood to cover over sins. And Jesus Christ has conclusively shed his blood. The king, the creator, the high priest has become the sacrifice. It's incredible. And he's offering himself to to us. When you come to this table, just think of the imagery. What do you bring? Nothing. None of you bring the fixins. You bring nothing to dinner. Jesus has provided everything. We come empty-handed, receiving, declaring nothing but the grace of of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to do two things as we prepare to receive this. And I just encourage you to, to consider these things. Um, we, we would say, come up here to declare that this is true. Do you have to believe, do you have to like go, wow, I always am the best follower of Jesus? No, you don't. All you have to say is, I trust him. I trust him. Even if you just have a little mustard seed of faith. To prepare for this, we're going to take two minutes of silence. This is our time of confession. This is a time to come before him and even just just offer up, I I trust in other things. And examine yourselves. What is that? What what kind of sheep's clothing is, is most appealing to you? What other gospel is most appealing to you? And, and you don't have to, like, fix it. Confess it. Accept his forgiveness and return to him. After that two minutes, Mike will bring us back with song, and, and we're going to sing songs to the Lord. I mean, this is, this is a time to, to express, you can express honestly, if these words resonate with your soul, sing them out. Stand and sing. If you need to think about this, you can sit and reflect, and that's fine. Giving is in the back, and we hope that you would just give cheerfully, because Christ has given all to us. So, I'm going to pray and lead us into that time, and then let's reflect in silence together. Father, we praise you for your, your great plan that spans the ages, that we, we see the evidence in, um, of in the, in the Old Testament, this, uh, this covenant you've gave to us. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve uh, failed you, immediately in Genesis 3.15, you say that the, the son of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. You gave us our first glimpse of Jesus. And then in Abraham, you promised that all the nations of the earth would be blessed, and you gave us the sign of circumcision. And then in Christ, you entered in to our situation. You bore our sin on the cross. You became a curse so that we didn't have to be cursed. You were rejected and utterly scorned so that we could be lifted up and exalted that we could be given peace and love and hope 
and joy in the Spirit. I pray that we would see the ways that Jesus has fulfilled all your promises, that we would hope in him alone. Lead us there in our hearts. Guide us as we confess and show yourself gracious to us. In Jesus' name.